I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking to Elliot Israel, Director of Clinical Research in the Pulmonary Division at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School in Boston. We're here to discuss the benefits and risks of long-acting beta agonists in the treatment of asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Dr. Israel, let's begin with the basics. What are long-acting beta agonists, or LABAs, and how do they work? So long-acting beta agonists are a type of therapy used for asthma and COPD that works primarily by relaxing the airway smooth muscle. So if we think about the defect in asthma, we think about airway constriction. Part of that airway constriction or narrowing is due to the fact that there's smooth muscle constriction. And relaxation of that smooth muscle constriction can produce benefit in terms of increased airflow. In COPD, there's a problem with decreased airflow. Um, and in that case as well, dilating the airways by relaxing the smooth muscle around the airways also can produce benefit in terms of decreasing the restriction to airflow. Long-acting beta agonists are a version of beta agonists, which are medications that work at the beta-adrenergic receptor, which are on smooth muscle, and stimulation of those receptors actually causes bronchodilatation or relaxation of the muscle around the airways, allowing the airways to enlarge. What are the benefits of LABAs for patients with asthma and patients with COPD? Some of the benefit is the long-acting nature of these agents. They produce a more continuous relaxation of the smooth muscle. And so in comparison to using an agent every six hours, such as a short-acting beta agonist, when they were looked at and compared to the longer-acting beta agonist, which produced relaxation for 12 hours, patients were noted to have less, uh, report less symptoms and decreased work of breathing when they use long-acting beta agonists, as opposed to having that up and down, if you will, from using the short-acting beta agonists. And plus, there's obviously the convenience for the patients of not having to use an agent every four to six hours, as opposed to being able to use an agent twice a day, which fits into people's routines much more easily. How would you prescribe LABAs? For what types of patients and under what conditions? So I think that that varies um, based on disease diagnosis. I think it really is different for COPD than it is for asthma. And I'll start with COPD because I think that's easier. Um, in COPD, long-acting beta agonists produce relaxation of the airway smooth muscle. They decrease airway resistance. And clinically, they've been found to be effective in terms of decreasing symptoms for patients with COPD. So in patients with COPD, it's easier to give them a, um, a long-acting beta agonist. And one can usually say to those patients, you should within the first one or two times that you use long-acting beta agonist, you should notice that there's been some improvement um, in your work of breathing, in your symptoms in terms of shortness of breath, um, and so that those agents are very effective and considered among the first-line agents for the treatment of patients with COPD who are symptomatic and have airflow obstruction. In the case of asthma, the the situation is a little more complicated um, because while um, these agents do produce a decrease in um, airway constriction and a decrease in airway narrowing and a decrease in symptoms, there's been some concern that do, just relieving symptoms in asthma um, may not be an effective strategy or a strategy that one wants to adopt in isolation. And that's because in asthma, the airway constriction that occurs is not only due to narrowing of the airways due to the smooth muscle, but it's also 
due to the fact that there's airway inflammation and narrowing due to um, edema of the airways and inflammation of the airways due to cellular influx. Um, and then one wants to treat that airway inflammation as well as treating the airway narrowing. And when one administers long-acting beta agonists alone, one's only treating the airway narrowing related to the smooth muscle constriction and not treating the airway inflammation. So in the case of thinking about what types of patients one wants to treat with asthma um, with long-acting beta agonists, the thought um, is that one wants to combine a long-acting beta agonist with an anti-inflammatory agent in order to be able to treat the inflammatory component of the asthma and the um, and the, smooth, and the smooth muscle narrowing. In the case of asthma, since one wants to treat the airway inflammation as well as the, uh, as well as the smooth muscle narrowing, one, wants to, one is generally administering long-acting beta agonists with inhaled corticosteroids. When long-acting beta agonists were first introduced, um, because they're so effective in producing a long-term bronchodilation and decrease in airway narrowing, it was thought that they might be able to be used alone. However, the data suggests that although they produce a reduction in symptoms and a better sense of well-being for patients, that in fact there might be an increase in asthma exacerbations when long-acting beta agonists are used alone because the inflammatory component of the asthma isn't being treated. Um, and so there have been several studies that have shown that even though patients report decreased symptoms, um, decreased use of short-acting beta agonists, um, decreased nighttime awakenings when they use long-acting beta agonists alone, that they were in fact actually having more asthma exacerbations when they were being treated with long-acting beta agonists, so that it was thought not to be an acceptable strategy to just use long-acting beta agonists alone. So the consensus recommendations as well as the recommendations of the FDA are that long-acting beta agonists only be used with an inhaled corticosteroid in patients with asthma. That brings us to the issue of then which types of patients um, with asthma should be treated with long-acting beta agonists and inhaled corticosteroid. Um, and that's a somewhat controversial um, area um, in the sense that there's been some concern that in addition to this issue of these increased exacerbations with long-acting beta agonists used alone, that there might still be an issue of increased exacerbations with long-acting beta agonists even when they're used with inhaled corticosteroids. Um, and that's based on um, several large studies um, that were done in which patients were put on, randomized to long-acting beta agonists plus whatever therapy they were on, um, long-acting beta agonists or placebo, plus whatever therapy they were on. And in those studies, there seemed to be an increase in the rates of severe exacerbations, hospitalizations, intubations, or deaths um, in the patients who had been randomized to the long-acting beta agonists rather than placebo. Now, um, a significant proportion of the patients in those studies were not on inhaled corticosteroids at the time those studies were being done. But even in the patients who were on inhaled corticosteroids, while there wasn't a significant increase in the um, rates of um, these severe asthma exacerbations, intubations, or deaths, um, there was actually still the same type of trend of relative rate of risk um, of these things happening in the patients who were on inhaled corticosteroids as well. So that's really um, caused um, some concern among, um, among practitioners and among, amongst the FDA. The FDA put a black box warning um, on um, all compounds containing uh, LABAs, um, saying that they should only be used in more severe patients, and those patients should have their inhaled corticosteroids increased and then attempt to see if their uh, LABAs could be removed. So in answer to the question of which patients with asthma one would treat with a long-acting beta agonist inhaled corticosteroid, the recommendations and the consensus recommendations are generally that one does not institute um, long-acting beta agonist therapy in addition to inhaled corticosteroid therapy until patients are at least least on moderate doses of inhaled corticosteroids. So meaning that if they've not responded to low doses of inhaled corticosteroids, 
One might consider either going to moderate doses of inhaled corticosteroids, or one might consider going to a LABA plus um, a lower dose of inhaled corticosteroid. What, which of those two combinations one should go to remains somewhat controversial, um, and I think is part of what the FDA is pushing to in terms of trying to figure out what the real risk is related to the use of long-acting beta agonists in patients with asthma. I think the area where we, I think, general consensus um, is clear is that it's not reasonable to take a mild asthmatic um, with first therapy who's not really having a lot of a lot of problems and put them on a long-acting beta agonist inhaled corticosteroid. Do we know why or how LABAs cause asthma exacerbations? Um, so we, um, we don't know for sure. Um, there are several um, interesting um, pieces of information that suggest possible mechanisms by which one might think that these exacerbations would occur. First of all, we do know that LABAs, by decreasing the airway narrowing and decreasing the airway constriction, decrease symptoms. And so one of the concerns might be that patients who are beginning to experience increased airway inflammation, um, the person who goes to Antilly and Antilly has a cat and they have allergies to cat, um, and um, they actually took their long-acting beta agonist, and so they're kind of sitting there at Antilles and not feeling too bad um, because the airway constriction is being prevented by the long-acting beta agonist. And so whereas normally they would have been aware that um, Antilles cat isn't good for them because they're starting to feel that their breathing's a little heavier or they're kind of getting a little heaviness in their chest because long-acting beta agonist is actually preventing that airway constriction even though the airway inflammation is occurring um, and release of mediators is occurring one could see how possibly one might end up not getting out of there quote-unquote in time right and therefore um, potentially um, having a, a more significant degree of exacerbation than one might have had beforehand so it's kind of I give patients the example of, um, um, you know, if you go in the sun and if you um, have put an anesthetic on your skin, then you won't realize you're burning um, type of issue. So that's one thought about what might be happening in a certain group of patients um, who, um, who, who take LABAs. Um, there is some data to suggest that in some cases, actually, there's a greater degree of airway inflammation um, in patients who are at the same symptomatic level um, when they're using LABAs and lower doses of inhaled corticosteroids as opposed to using higher doses of inhaled corticosteroids and not using their LABA. So this is a, a second kind of way of looking at this in terms of saying, well, perhaps what we're doing is we're masking some of the um, response to airway inflammation and allowing there to be a greater level of inflammation even, even at baseline um, in these patients and that these patients might therefore meet, be at greater risk when they run into something that might really truly cause um, an exacerbation. According to the authors of a current perspective article on the LABA indicatorol, Historically, LABAs have been developed first for patients with asthma, and then the same dose has been applied to patients with COPD. Is that the most appropriate way to proceed? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, I think that it's difficult to know. I think what we're realizing is that um, the, uh, the airway constriction or the airway narrowing in asthma and COPD, we always knew that the cause of airflow obstruction was pathophysiologically different in the two diseases. I think as we develop new pharmacologic agents, um, we're beginning to realize that those agents might act in different ways in these in these two diseases, which both have a hallmark of airway obstruction, um, and that we're beginning actually to sect out those pathophysiological differences. So I think where before we might have thought that might be a reasonable way to go, I don't know that I would advocate doing the reverse, saying, oh, first I'll test in COPD and then I'll test in asthma. I think we need to think about the 
these two diseases somewhat separately and say, okay, what works for COPD, what works for asthma? If one's interested, even if one's interested only in the bronchodilating component of this, and I think that's why the first studies were in asthmatic patients, because the bronchodilating component is so much easier to demonstrate in patients with asthma. Patients with asthma have a much greater degree of airway reversibility, or their smooth muscle narrowing is much more reversible than in the patients with COPD. So naturally, the first place to look if you were looking at an agent that caused smooth muscle relaxation was to look in the disease process where you'd have the greatest signal, and that would be asthma. And so I think that, would, that was the natural place to first, as proof of concept, if you were interested in seeing whether you had a bronchodilator, you tested in asthmatics to see if you had a bronchodilator, and then go on to COPD and see if that bronchodilator produced effects. So if that's still the goal, if your goal is to see whether you have a bronchodilator, it probably still makes sense to test for proof of concept um, in asthma. Um, but what actually happens later on in terms of clinical development and whether this is appropriate for that group of patients actually really depends on what the interaction is between that drug and the disease process and the underlying pathobiology of the disease. And that, I think that's why we see this difference in patients with COPD where there really isn't, there hasn't been a signal of increased exacerbations, um, deaths or intubations with a long-acting beta agonist, which is why we're willing to prescribe long-acting beta agonists alone in those patients, but we're not willing to do that in patients with asthma. In your view, do the risks outweigh the benefits for either group or for both groups? So I think clearly for COPD, um, it appears that long-acting beta agonists produce uh, a decrease in worker breathing, a decrease in symptoms. These are patients who are quite symptomatic, whose quality of life is severely impacted. Um, there seems to be little data to suggest that there are significant side effects related to um, LABAs. And so I think that the cost-benefit equation is clearly on the positive side for long-acting beta agonists and COPD. I think the cost-benefit equation for LABAs used correctly um, is also on the positive side for patients with asthma. And when I say used correctly, I think in the appropriate patients, um, in patients using them with inhaled corticosteroids, and in patients with the appropriate degree of severity, and patients who really need um, that um, long-acting beta agonist. So, you know, in my own practice, I tend to move up on inhaled corticosteroids until I get control, um, and then add a LABA um, to see if I can get further improvements in quality of life for patients, um, but try to first see if I can control the airway inflammation. So move up to the moderate dose of inhaled corticosteroids, and if one's still not getting a benefit, consider possibly even moving to a higher dose of inhaled corticosteroids, and then adding the LABA if there's still some issue in terms of day-to-day -day symptoms. But what I really want to see, and what I I think we all want to see is a decrease in exacerbations um, in these patients. And what is interesting is when one looks at the randomized studies of LABAs and inhaled corticosteroids and adding LABAs to inhaled corticosteroids, um, when one, for instance, in a very large study called FACET that was published in the New England Journal um, several years ago, um, it's I think now over 10 years ago actually, um, when they um, went from low-dose inhaled corticosteroid to, um, to, a lob, to adding a LABA to the inhaled corticosteroid versus adding, going up to a higher dose of inhaled corticosteroid, while the um, inhaled corticosteroid, or rather the LABA, um, produced a um, an increase in a decrease in symptoms um, and asthma control that looked like it was equivalent to that of adding the inhaled corticosteroids. When one looked at exacerbations, that wasn't the case. There actually not there was not as good control of exacerbations, um, even though it was significantly better than the low dose inhaled corticosteroid alone. It was not as good as the higher dose inhaled corticosteroid, um, and that gets again to this issue of controlling the symptoms, but the issue of controlling the underlying pathobiology in terms of inflammation, which we are concerned might lead to exacerbations. In a prospective article earlier this year, authors from the FDA described six new clinical trials of LABAs that were being launched. 
What's the goal of these trials? So the FDA has been concerned about the issue of whether there actually is an increase in the severe exacerbations, intubations, hospitalizations, and deaths in patients when they use LABAs, even in the context of inhaled corticosteroids. And there have been no uh, randomized trials of the size that would allow one to really determine whether there is really this increased signal of these increased severe exacerbations. And so what the FDA has mandated is a large set of trials done by the manufacturers of LABAs to actually address this question in which patients will be ran patients on inhaled corticosteroids will be randomized to a LABA or a placebo and to see whether there's actually a increase in the rates of these exacerbations or not with the addition of the LABA. So the goal is really to try to determine whether there's an increased rate of exacerbations in, um, in relation to using the LABA in these patients when patients are using inhaled corticosteroids. Thank you, Dr. Israel.